Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Supplemental, the Napoleonic Code. Welcome back, everyone. And this week, we will be talking strictly about the Civil Code of the French, better known today as the Napoleonic Code. And it's one of the oldest legal systems which is still in service. Now, prior to the advent of the Napoleonic Code, France was tethered together by an abstract amalgamation of local customs, historical precedents, royal decrees, as well as religious adherence. And there were exceptions, of course. Privileges and certain charters were granted to the highest-ranking members of the second estate who could always skirt around indiscriminate taxes. But much of this, as we know, was what led to the French Revolution breaking out in 1789 and driving the country into a decade-long chaotic spiral. But we also know that the revolution did away with the last vestiges of feudalism in France. And they also tried to implement new legal systems, which would help prevent what caused the need for revolution in the first place. The Constituent Assembly voted in 1790 for a codified French legal system, while the Constitution of 1791 promised one would be written. But it would not be until 1793 that the National Convention would establish a special commission to oversee a drafting process in which a completed French civil code would be written. Now, the man who was tasked to lead this commission none other than Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès. Now, we've mentioned Cambacérès a few times throughout this series in passing, with various levels of involvement in individual episodes. But I do think that now is time to pay the man his due, since he will be remembered as one of the principal architects of what would be known as the Napoleonic Code. So, let's give a quick introduction to Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès. Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès was born on October 18, 1753, so he was about 16 years Napoleon's senior. Now, despite being born into a family of legal nobility in Montpellier, he grew up relatively poor compared to his contemporaries, and when the French Revolution broke out, he was one of the notable members of the nobility who actually supported the revolution. Now, interestingly, he was a backup deputy to represent Montpellier in the Estates General in case the Second Estate needed additional voting members, but he was ultimately not selected to attend the meeting of Versailles. After the onset of the revolution, however, he would be selected to represent the Department of Héroult at the National Convention, and he was on hand when they abolished the monarchy and proclaimed the First French Republic in September of 1792. Now, Camarsehez was a brilliant and calculating lawyer, and he used these skills to great effect during the days of the terror. Said to be a friend to all and an enemy to none, Cambacérès was a moderate enough to be used by all factions of the fracturing divide within the National Convention. Now, this can probably be best exemplified with the trial of Louis XVI. Cambacérès voted with the majority of his constituents in that the king was guilty of his crimes, but later recommended that his sentence be delayed until it could be ratified by a legislative body. Now, some believe that this likely spared him from assassination during the terror, but he was methodical in how he approached specific situations politically. He was even brought on as a member of the Committee of Public Safety after the fall of Robespierre, 
and so he continued to draft proposals for French law, although many of them would be rejected. Still, the fact that he was allowed to continue doing so was just further proof of his value for any of the regimes that were to come in power. Now, after the fall of the Jacobins and the rise of the Directory, Camasajes was elected to the Council of 500, and his debating skills were said to have been unmatched in the chamber. But he was considered too conservative to become one of the five directors, something which likely led to him being a supporter of Napoleon's coup of 18 Brumaire, and with him being made second consul, along with first consul Napoleon and third consul Lebrun. Now it was here, thanks in no large part to his almost limitless knowledge of the law, that he was given free reign to write up the civil code of the French, and with a team of three other lawyers, they created what became the Napoleonic Code in March of 1804. Now, Camasajes had attempted numerous efforts at codifying a civil code prior to 1804, but much of the turmoil of the revolution, as well as the wars in Europe, prevented them from ever being taken seriously. Thus, Napoleon's victory in the War of the Second Coalition and the subsequent year of peace gave Paris the needed respite to look inward in order to finally build out a legal system which would last for decades. And I'm not even sure that they knew at the time that it would last for over two centuries. Now, after Napoleon came to power, one of the first things he did with regards to the domestic situation was to form that commission in which was tasked with trying to solve the convoluted legal system left in place after centuries of royal and, recently, revolutionary rule. Napoleon had wanted a concrete, easy-to-understand legal system, which would be created in accordance with the ideals of the French Revolution, but also with the order which was present during the years of the monarchy. That is to say, a respect for the rule of law, for a law that had respect for those being ruled. Now, the commission, as I stated earlier, began in 1800 and consisted of four prominent lawyers with Camasajes as its head consul. Napoleon, always one to meddle in everyone's affairs, was also present at many of the meetings and would make um, suggestions for the code's creation. The code would be completed in just over a year, but with intense debate in the Concile d'État, it would not be enacted until March 21st, 1804, when it was announced as the Civil Code of the French and then renamed the Napoleonic Code for propaganda purposes from 1807 to 1815, and then again after the formation of the Second French Empire under Napoleon's nephew, Emperor Napoleon III. Now, the code itself was based in part by the Corpus Iureus Civilis under the Byzantine Empire Justinian. Now, this is sometimes confused with the Justinian's Code, which itself was a part of the Iuris Civilis, but the Corpus Iuris Civilis was far more encompassing. The breakdown between the two systems went as follows. The Corpus Iuris Civilis was based on three principles, persons, things, and actions, whereas the Napoleonic Code was based on persons, property, acquisition of property, and the civil procedure, moving to a separate code later in 1806. Now, despite their similarities, there were some notable differences. Some of these included the following. One, the Napoleonic Code incorporated many of the earlier rules and customs, just not legislation. Two, it was a complete rewrite of the French legal system, rather than a collection of previous extracts of past civil codes, which, you know, didn't exist. Three, its structure was far more rational with regards to the norms of the day. And four, and critically, there was no religious content and was written in the vernacular of the day rather than an ancient language that only the upper classes could read. Now, that last piece is important because 
It was one of the first legal systems which made the law accessible to the masses. This meant that not only were the majority of French citizens able to understand what the law was, but they were able to understand how it would apply to them. Prior to the Revolution, absolutism made judgments before the law far more arbitrary, and during the Revolution, judges were far more prejudicial to the classes in which they were assigned. Thus, in a sense, it was the first time in French history that a legal system was put into place that judged people equally before the law. Well, men, but we'll get to that in a second. Now, as to the contents of the code, it dealt with a wide variety of issues and statutes. The rule of law, as we mentioned earlier, was paramount to its implementation. Laws could only be implemented if they had been duly promulgated, meaning that no one could be convicted of a criminal offense unless a previously published legal text set out in clear and precise wording the constituent elements of the offense and the penalty which applied to it. Did we all get that? Great. No longer were the days of convictions and sentences in ad hoc cases. Now, clear and concise documentation had to lay out exactly what an individual was being charged and possibly convicted of. This also did away with secret laws that would likely have come into play for political purposes or against certain individuals looking for vengeance. Conversely, though, because it had such a strict legal framework, the code did away with what many of us in common law countries would regard to as judicial review. It gave judges far less authority to declare laws unconstitutional or, going further, to rewrite laws based on case decisions. That's why, even to this day, there is really no such thing as case law in France. Courts do have the ability to fill gaps and actually are prohibited from not doing so, but there is no stare decisis like many of us are used to in the United States, for example. And for those outside the U.S., that basically means literally let it stand, as in most cases are decided as precedent and should not be touched unless under the strictest amount of scrutiny. And yes, I am aware that that has not been the case lately with the present U.S. Supreme Court, but let's not get sidetracked here. Anyway, what the code did was to encourage judges to enforce the law rather than to interpret it, allowing for fairer judgments across a diverse country, and soon-to-be countries. Now, having said all of this, perhaps the most infamous part of the code, which has obviously since been repealed, was the role it had on reducing the rights of women, so much so that women in Napoleonic France actually had fewer rights than did their children. Yes, you heard that correctly. Now, allow me to preface this part by saying that this was not out of the norm for the day. In fact, it was right in line with the rest of Europe's familial laws at the time. But still, many of the progress women had received during the French Revolution was really all but erased with the stroke of a pen. The husband was granted supremacy over his wife, which was customary in France prior to the Revolution, and divorce by mutual consent was abolished in 1804, meaning that only the husband was able to initiate a divorce. What this really meant was that it, essentially, tolerated extramarital affairs by the husband, as only he could ask for a divorce on the ground of infidelity. Or any count, for that matter. The Napoleonic Code today is still in force in France, though it now contains over 60 codes in total and is frequently amended and it does come under some limited scrutiny in French courts. These additions, complete with their thorough annotations, are massive, and the code today consists of over 3,000 pages if all of those annotations are read together, all of which are publicly available online, by the way, and for print. 
Now, it has been stated that the code now in the 21st century is less of a law book and more of a database, compiling previous statutes, laws, and court decisions into a giant legal encyclopedia. In fact, it is so long, and to an extent convoluted, that many believe it's reached its peak influence. In 2011, for example, a commission was drawn up to analyze the need to reform the system, concluding that, quote, the commission observes that the age of drawing up new codes is probably reaching its end. The aim of a nearly complete codification of the law is no longer pursued for these three reasons. Firstly, the technical developments by which texts are provided in non-physical form offer to users modes of access that are comparable in many ways to those available through a code. Secondly, the creation of new codes encounters a kind of law of diminishing returns in that the more progress that is made in the development of new codes, the trickier it becomes to determine in which code particular provisions should be located. And finally, it is clear that certain kinds of provisions are unsuitable for codification since codification makes sense only when it involves provisions that possess sufficient generality. Now, all of this notwithstanding, there has been little movement in completely overhauling the code or implementing a new one. And so as of this recording, in 2023, the Civil Code of the French will remain in force for the foreseeable future. Which is a nice segue that brings us to the lasting influence that the Napoleonic Code has had not just on society in France, but around the world. As we mentioned, the Napoleonic Code was not the first civil code, or really even the first civil code in Europe. In fact, there were civil codes in other European countries prior to and during its implementation, including in Prussia and the Austrian constituent of Galicia. But it was, by any measure, the most influential. As Napoleon roared through the rest of Europe, the French brought the code with them, and while it was not implemented in every satellite government, its influence was felt in almost every section of the French Empire, especially in the German provinces of the Rhenish Palatinate and the Prussian Rhine province. The Napoleonic Code would influence the implementation of a later German civil code during the German Empire, and its reasoning was very similar to Napoleon's. Strong central government, respect for the rule of law, property disputes, establishing a society built on liberal ideals, and, here's the kicker, anti-French sentiment. Now, many civil codes in former French colonies adopted the code almost verbatim, including Mauritius and in Quebec. Simon Bolivar, who watched Napoleon from a distance during his rise to power in Europe, brought much of the code's Enlightenment ideals with him during the South American revolutions a few decades later, and many civil codes in Latin America today are heavily borrowed from the code, namely in Chile, Mexico, and even Puerto Rico. Heck, even the U.S. state of Louisiana, formerly a Spanish and then French possession, as we know from our episode on the Louisiana Purchase, retains many of the elements of the French civil system, making it unique amongst other U.S. states who all otherwise followed the English common law system. Louisiana's inheritance law and bar exams are significantly different from other states, and some of them even clash with federal standards. So, even here in the United States, Napoleon's influence is still felt to this day. Think about that for a second. So we'll leave it here for now. I know that this was a shorter snippet of what the Napoleonic Code truly is, as well as one of our shorter episodes. But I hope it did help give you all an understanding of what the document was used for and why it is still influential even today in 2023 and likely beyond. Next week, 
we're going to be diving into how Napoleon was able to spread this massively important legal system across Europe. Because next week, we'll begin the War of the Third Coalition, and Napoleon is going to start shaping Europe into his own image, whether they like it or not.